from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is episode number 660 of the Coco Crew Podcast. This is the first episode of our sixth year. Wow. Who would ever thought? Big 6 0. <laughs> it's incredible. It's um, pretty impressive, pretty impressive. The longer we keep going, the more we get to more downloads. It's funny how that works. <laughs> <laughs> doing well, doing well. Uh, let's see, of course, I'm John Linville, and I'm joined by uh, some of our hosts, most of our hosts. Uh, of course, we've got Mr. Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, John, and everyone listening. And uh, Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well. Are you dodging the storm? So far, uh, nothing's hit us yet. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, the, the major storm dodger, uh, Mr. Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> Let's see. It is, uh, of course, it's towards the, the end of May now, 2020. Coca Fest. Uh, well, we don't know when we're going to see a Coca Fest. Still could be a while. It may just be around. Who knows? When we get an announcement, we'll let you know. <laughs> Still hoping to see one eventually. But uh, we've got Tandy Assembly. That's uh, roughly six months away now. We're definitely looking forward to that. The, the, the last event still on our, our last live event still on our schedule, I think. <laughs> so moving along. Let's Here's see. Time. Who's working on something cool? Anybody got a project in the works? Still working on the same projects from last month. <laughs> Building cartridges? Building cartridges and the... Tandy arcade joystick. It uh, yeah, looked very cool. nice, by the way. I'm I'm looking forward to mine. Oh, thanks. Yeah. We're, we're on. Uh, very exciting. Uh, we're going to be uh, the next one should be the final production. Very cool. Very cool. You up to anything cool, Boise? I'm continuing the work on the Coco Collector video series and still working on getting my parallel Coco project going. It actually is going. I just need to document it. But yeah, still working on that. Cool. And. Um, very good. A couple of other things that I'll keep under wraps for now. Cool. I understand that. Yeah, I haven't really been up to very much myself. Uh, a little tinkering here and there. Usual kind of stuff, I guess, but nothing really to report. How about any acquisitions? Anybody got any cool acquisitions lately? Anything they want to admit to? Well, <laughs> I certainly acquired a huge cocoa lot. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, last week, actually, it was just recent. It's a pretty big collection. Yeah, Very cool. Time to go through it. Uh, just yeah. working on it. Actually, uh, half of it was trying to find spots in the basement for all the boxes. <laughs> Didn't want to <laughs> That's cool. Worst so, kind of problem, so, huh? So it was exciting. It was a 15-hour round trip to uh, Quebec province and uh, brought it back to Ontario here. That's awesome. That's great. It's hard to find those Very big cool. holes like that anymore. Yeah. Definitely don't see as many. No. 
Uh, how about uh, anyone else got anything they picked up recently that's cool? I have something that I picked up. I guess it'll it'll allude to what I said I wasn't going to talk about, but what the heck. I'll let you figure it out. <laughs> so I am going to be writing some 6502 assembly code that's going to be running on an Atari A8. And in order to do that, I had to pick up some cartridges, blank cartridges for the A8s. Those should be coming in soon. I got the notification today. Why? You'll have to find out later. <laughs> that should be cool. No disappointment again here. <laughs> Normally, I keep the eBay queue uh, full, but lately, uh, not too much. I guess a, a couple of weeks ago, I did uh, roll together some of the stuff I'd let accumulate around um, my uh, my easy chair and uh, took them out to the uh, the, the storage room. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least I'm making room for more stuff, right? Oh, well, not much else going on. Just one of those things, trying to get through the, the virus crisis, and uh, <laughs> maybe we'll eventually get on to something better. Well, so speaking of something better, why don't we uh, take a little break, and then um, we'll come back with uh, with the rest of the show. At Radio Shack, a full line of quality modems makes getting online easy. Open the door to an electronic village where the latest news, stock prices, and more are at your fingertips. Save time with our AC4 Acoustic Coupler. It's perfect for travelers and works with any telephone handset. Just $119.95. And the Direct Connection Modem 2 is also sale price this month for just $119.95. Our basic 300 baud modem is under $60. The DCM3 modem offers full duplex data transfer and is affordable for any home computer at just $59.95. Finally, the DC2212 operates at a blazing 1200 baud. Save on long-distance charges by transferring data up to four times faster. Choose an affordable Radio Shack modem that fits your needs and never be out of touch again. And they're only available in one place. Radio Shack, the technology store. All right, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some announcements. Of course, you are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. And we are available on Twitter as a Twitter handle at Coco Crew Podcast. That's C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Uh, we also, of course, have a page on Facebook. And that, of course, is the Coco Crew Podcast. That's four separate words. Coco Crew Podcast, of course, is a podcast. And therefore, we are available from um, usual places. <laughs> along with our own RSS feed at uh, CocoCrew.org. Uh, we're also available through, uh, of course, Apple Podcasts and Google Play. We are available for um, streaming through Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So however you like to consume your podcasts, live or recorded, whatever, <laughs> we should have you covered. If there's something that you need to use that we're missing, uh, send us some feedback and uh, let us know. For some time, we've been taking our audio podcast and doing a little conversion on it into a, a YouTube video. And so if you uh, like, you can consume the podcast in a kind of sort of video form <laughs> on YouTube. Uh, the one big advantage to doing this is uh, YouTube's pretty good with rendering subtitles. And so if English is not your first language or if you're not real good with the accents or you just prefer to read subtitles, <laughs> Um, then you can check out uh, our YouTube playlist with the um, video versions of the podcast. Let's see. We are, of course, a member of the Throwback Network. And the Throwback Network is a list of retro-themed podcasts. 
a variety of different topics centered around kind of 80s era culture, <laughs> uh, some of which is electronics and gaming, and some of which is just goofy stuff like The Greatest American Hero. If you are caught up on the Coco Group podcast, then uh, we recommend that you check out the Throwback Network for other listening options. We are also listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub, which is another list of, in this case, retro-themed podcasts around um, video games and, and uh, home computers from the 80s. So again, if you're caught up with the Coco Crew podcast and looking for something else that might be somewhat similar, then we recommend that you check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio on the internet, whether it be for your own podcast or your weekly church services or whatever else you might have, business announcements or anything, then we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears, where you will get your audio on your terms. If you'd like to reach out to the host of the Cocoa Crew Podcast via email, we have several addresses set up. Uh, the first three will reach all of the hosts. We have show, S-H-O-W, at CocoCrew.org. That's at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. We also have podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at CocoCrew.org. And if you do want to reach us individually, of course, I'm available as John, J-O-H-N. Neil is available as Neil, N-E-I-L. Mike is Mike, M-I-K-E. Boise is <laughs> Boise, B-O-I-S-Y. And, of course, Ron uh, is available as Ron, R-O-N, at CocoCrew.org. Any of those will reach the individual hosts. Uh, so if you want a one-on-one -on -one conversation or just want to complain or whatever, <laughs> that's how you reach us. That's a, sort of our stock announcements. Uh, at this point, we normally would cover uh, events in real life that we think are of interest to our listening audience. <laughs> Unfortunately, given the current situation in the world, these uh, lists are getting uh, fewer and fewer, shorter and shorter. <laughs> Let's see. We still have on the list you know, the Dragon Meetup scheduled for uh, July 4th and 5th of 2020 to be held um, uh, at the Center for Computing History in uh, Cambridge, the UK. Unfortunately, if you check that link out, it'll show you that the venue is currently closed. No indication of when it will open. I did see uh, the organizer say that if it does open, even on fairly short notice, I think he still intends to have it. <laughs> so still on the list. If things suddenly turn around in the Cambridge area in uh, early July and you're looking for something to do, you may want to check it out. This one was the most disappointing thing recently. <laughs> Vintage Computer Festival Southeast was scheduled for July 10th to 12th of 2020 at the Marriott Renaissance Waverly in Atlanta, Georgia. Unfortunately, they have canceled the event. How much else to say? It looked like it was going to be a cool event. was really looking forward to it since um, Georgia looks like it's um, opening up. But uh, even though it's still a half, two months away, they went ahead and canceled. Boo. <laughs> I know Boise and I were planning to attend. Oh, well. Well, moving on. So originally, from th we had Kansas Fest scheduled for the week of July 21st to 26th. But... The physical event has been uh, canceled, and so they have rescheduled uh, virtual Kansas Fest, which is scheduled to happen uh, to July 24th to 25th of 2020. This will be an online event. They have the webpage up. It looks like uh, you have to register for it if you want to participate in the online event. 
The registration cost will be $20 per person. Get a discount coupon for a T-shirt. <laughs> um, so anyway, if you're a dedicated Apple II fan and if you're interested in attending a virtual fest event, um, well, there's your chance. Check it out. So, of course, hanging on, <laughs> we're all desperate to see this one happen now. Not that we weren't already waiting with bated breath, but now we're extra, extra. <laughs> Definitely want to see this succeed. Coming up um, the weekend, October 30th through November 1st of 2020. That'll be Tandy Assembly, scheduled for uh, Springfield, Ohio. This will be the only live Tandy event that I'm aware of this year. Hoping that it still happens. I think we're pretty uh, set to, to see it happen. Unless the government stops us. <laughs> so, we can't speak for what they're going to do in Ohio, but um, hopefully things don't get to, don't take a turn for the worse, and maybe we'll still be able to have this by uh, by Halloween. All right. Well, very cool. Those are our announcements. Why don't we take another little break, and then we'll be back with the news. Six months ago, the Red Allegiant demanded full political control of Alpha Sigma 3 and threatened harsh retaliation if their demands were not met. And while the Federation was able to secure Alpha Sigma 3, we weren't prepared for them to make good on that threat. The simultaneous release of the bioweapon L-2207 on all 34 colonies has infected all known plant life. We can't predict the impact to planetary ecosystems. But there's hope. Agents near the Boundary Worlds encountered a traitor who had plants that appear to be immune to the effects of the virus. According to these agents, these plants come from a planet known as Zephyr. As you know, there are hundreds of unexplored worlds beyond Federation space. Your job is to find Zephyr and bring back edible plant life to see the planets and save the colonies. Starship Falcon, a new graphics adventure game for your color computer. Can you find the planet Zephyr and save mankind? Good luck. Requires 32K disc from Sircomp. The Himalayas, Nepal. You have traveled far seeking answers. Yes, I seek the ultimate happiness. You may see the master now. Your eminence, I've walked for 10 days for an audience with you. Dude, come on in here. Am I in the right place? Totally. You hold the secret of true happiness? Yeah, check it out. It's Screen Machine. The ultimate graphics tech screen enhancer, Screen Machine, is a machine language extension to BASIC that enables you to easily mix high-res graphics and text in your programs. A user-definable 224-character set featuring true lowercase and graphic characters like cars, planes, tanks, and more. Support mixed text modes from 8x16 to 64x24 with full print at, tab, and comma fields. Full support of underline, subscript, superscript, reverse video, top and bottom scroll protection, double width, and full color characters. Screen Machine can be used in games, word processors, utilities. The possibilities are limitless. You're right. This is true happiness. Gnarly. I better go now. I have a 10-day walk back ahead of me. Dude, that's totally military. I took the helicopter. Screen Machine from Sugar Software. Coco Cruisers, pull over. It's time for the news. <laughs> <laughs> Our first news item this month is from Guillaume Major. I don't know if it's Major or Major. Uh, Guillaume, if you can uh, send us a phonetic spelling of your name, that would be that would be great. 
If you don't know Guillaume, he runs the, uh, is responsible for the colorcomputerarchive.com. If you're a Cocoaer, you should know that site. Anyway, uh, this some games in the Color Computer Archive can now be played online with Kieran's XROAR online emulator. I'm not Pretty sure we've cool. covered this before or not, but uh, it is great because you can just, if you want to try a game out, it'll pop it into the emulator for you right there from Color Computer Archive. So uh, pretty slick. XROAR is a great emulator, so check that out. Definitely. Our next story is from Reetfield Reetfield, Henry Reetfield. Coco 3 light gun game, Iron Force. And these are some videos, if you're familiar with the, the DICOM uh, games that use the light gun. Uh, you shoot at the television and uh, shoot at flying objects yeah. and things on the screen. Or even if you're not familiar with them, especially, because then this might be your first time ever to see them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I happen to have one of those guns in, the, in those games, so it, it is cool to see them. And those only work with a television at this time, but, yep. uh, you know, or, or a, a monitor, a CRT is what I, was what I mean. Uh, won't work exactly. with, a, exactly. uh, with an LCD right now. But, uh, yeah, this, he's got videos of playing Iron Forest and Medieval Madness. Fun to watch. Definitely check those out. Those games were advertised, if I recall, either on the front or the back inside cover of the rainbow. Yes. Really. And they have the most beautiful advertisements, beautiful color. Yes. Okay, this next one is from Tech Tangents at YouTube. Copper tape PCB repair, micro tangent. In this video, he's using copper tape, something I've never dealt with, but it's uh, it's kind of a cool video. He's working on a Commodore PET in the uh, keyboard that he's trying to replace a, a bad trace on and just shows a quick repair using this copper tape. There's probably a lot of things you could use that for. might be good for maybe fixing uh, the mylar on a uh, keyboard or just any kind of place where you don't want to actually put a, a bodge wire or something. You could, uh, or if you just needed something short term, you could do this, but it's a, it's a cool video. Have any of you ever use this copper tape? I'm not really familiar with the tape itself. In fact, I'm not even sure what it's really intended to be used for. But I did see the the video. I thought it was a neat possible little, you know, a thing to, for for the quick repairs, like you said. Thought some people might find it interesting. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. It's a, a new trick to put in your pocket, if nothing else. You might find some application for the future. Yeah, it might be an alternative to using bus wire, which is what I've tended to do, to use when trying to repair traces. Just kind of handy too, but. <laughs> Yeah, and it's adhesive, so you might even be able to get away with, you know, not soldering it for uh, for a time anyway. Sure, sure. All right, our next item is from John Mark Mobley, and it's AM radio to Coco cassette port to random number generator software. Now, I know John has been looking at, he was in on a discussion of, of coming up with different types of random number generation, since, uh, of course, random numbers on a computer are pseudo-random. You can alter the seed value and actually make the random numbers pretty predictable. One of the ideas was hook up the uh, cassette port to a radio and just tune it to, you know, tune it to a radio station or just a static or whatever to kind of become a, a, a random number or generation source. And this software, this program that John wrote allows you to do that. So kind of a curiosity and uh, some neat software might give you some ideas for your own random number generator. Yeah, I thought it was a cool idea been a while since I read it. I got the impression he wasn't super satisfied with the results. Um, yeah. I think maybe um, if, you, if you're just listening to speech, uh, there's so much violence that, that it kind of prejudices the values that you're more likely to get. <laughs> I don't know. One thing I've always heard is, that's similar to this is that if you want a really random, random numbers, is you should take, um, put a microphone in a computer room 
or put it near a fan or something like that where you get a lot of random noise that way. Sort of the same idea, a little bit different take on it, and that may or may not be any more successful. But it's cool to see him experiment with it and, uh, like I said, just yeah. see somebody playing with their cocoa. Yeah, cool idea. Okay, our next one is from Glenda Adams. The 80s arcade goodness of my latest hashtag nerd stitch project is complete. So this is a uh, cross stitch. So she's re replicated some part from uh, a Joust arcade game uh, as a cross stitch, which is kind of, uh, in a sense, cool. is almost perfect medium for that sort of thing. And um, it's not exactly, I mean, it's not a computer project, but sort of related to a computer or, or, or gaming, whatever. I don't know. It's kind of a neat thing. And, Without sounding uh, sexist or whatever, if you if you have a, a a lady companion that likes to do cross stitching, maybe you can uh, get her interested in doing some video game stuff, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you can get a that really is just pixel art. So uh, yeah, exactly. It looks pretty good. I mean, you you match those colors. It, it looks a lot like a computer screen. So it is pretty cool. Definitely worth checking this link out. Yeah, pretty so, cool. Our next one is from TubeTimeUS at Twitter. Well, will you look at that? It's a Vectrix running on my oscilloscope. And uh, this is a yeah. cool, cool video. He's got his Vectrix hooked up to an oscilloscope so that you can, you know, the uh, vector graphics appear on the screen of uh, the oscilloscope. And uh, there's a couple videos that is there. so cool. Yeah, it is pretty yeah. cool. Well, if you follow the thread, it's actually a, a reproduction Vectrix designed specifically to, to do output to an oscilloscope. I don't know how much that changes the circuit, but, you know, basically the, the, the monitor on a Vectrix isn't that different from an, an XY mode oscilloscope anyway. <laughs> so right, right, um, right. if you ever wanted a Vectrix and either can't find one or don't want to pay the price for one or you're just looking for a project and you have a, an oscilloscope uh, with the XY input, uh, it's a good way to, to uh, experiment with it. And, uh, and be able to play the Vectrix games, but it's even got a cartridge port. <laughs> In the past, we've ruled Vectrix inbound on the on the podcast because of the 6809. So, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Pretty, uh, pretty cool. Moving on to our next article. This one is from Richard Bagley, making PCBs with a vinyl cutter. I think what he's doing with a vinyl cutter, correct me if I'm wrong, is he's making uh, solder stencils for surface mount, correct? Yeah, I think he is making stencils, solder mash, but um, you know, I can see where you could also use it. Probably could use it as a form of etch resist, sort of in a do the reverse operation. I don't know. I mean, I don't know much about doing this per se. I know a lot of people have vinyl cutters, kind of a common arts and crafts thing these days. And so, if you have one, if your partner has one, maybe you can get a little time on it and figure out how to use it for your electronics hobby. Yeah, kind of cool. This next one is kind of a group of three. This is from Reitville, Reitville. He has videos on using RGB patch on the Color Computer 3 with the SDC. So if you're not familiar with the RGB patch, basically programs that were written for composite palettes with this patch, you can force it to use RGB. You know, you've played a lot of games where in composite they're color, but in RGB they're just black and white. This takes care of that so you can get uh, the colors that uh, you should see on RGB. And he's got it sort of automatically uh, patches before it loads a game. So he's got a, a video explaining the uh, RGB patch and then a couple of videos showing games that uh, he's done this with. And he can uh, pop them up on the RGB monitor. So 
pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is. And it's needed. This is kind of classic rebuild at this point where I just show how to do something that maybe not everybody knows how to do. A cool hack from sort of back in the day when people were had been used to doing the uh, composite colors on um, their Coco 1 and 2 games, and suddenly they've got their Coco 3 with a CM8, and they're all in black and white because <laughs> yeah. the CM8 doesn't do composite. Yeah. But it's a cool pack, you know, it's a cool hack, you know, to kind of mess with the registers um, and load the game, figures out the zero one one pattern, uh, it puts it in a mode that looks at two bits per pixel, and Sometimes zero one is blue and one and zero is red or vice versa, whichever it does, you know, makes the games work on the RGB style monitor, which nowadays might be uh, plugged into a HDMI converter or whatever else. But um, it's kind of cool to see somebody revitalize that, kind of rediscover or, or revitalize something that's been in the community, but had sort of been forgotten about, bring it back, make it current. It's cool to see that. Yeah, definitely. All right, the next news item is, why does punching Sonic 3D trigger a secret level select by Game Hut at YouTube? This is not a Coco game at all, but I just thought it was interesting. Sonic 3D for the Sega Genesis, you know, they had like a quality control at Sega before they'd accept your cartridges. And any kind of problem you had, you'd have to kind of redo, a, you know, a testing cycle. And so it would slow things down and maybe keep you from making any money with your game. And so one of the things that they did to smooth things along was that they, they basically trapped the various errors that the CPU can generate instead of just, you know, causing a crash and throwing up something like divide by zero error or, or something like that. They would just restart the uh, level select code. <laughs> and so that way if it, if it crashed, in the uh, Sega quality control, they just would see it go to the level select screen and say, okay, well, no big deal, <laughs> and pass them off. <laughs> and so I thought that was kind of cool. But then so the person that wrote this code said later he was finding that people were saying, well, if you mess around, if you jiggle the cartridge or, you know, whatever, you can get the secret game select uh, or level select screen. And he was like, well, I didn't write anything to do that. Well, what are they doing? But then he figured out that all they were doing was crashing the machine. <laughs> and it would come back up in this this game select or level select screen. So I thought it was neat to kind of illustrate that. So it's not a Cocoa thing. You probably could do something like that on the Cocoa. Of course, everybody, of course, and probably with good reason, is, is paranoid about jiggling their cartridges on the Cocoa for fear of, Sorting out their power and <laughs> frying, frying the CPU or whatever. But theoretically, you could do some of that uh, or something like that. It's not quite as much. The robot, the error handling on the 6809 is not as robust as on, say, the 68000. But there's some things that uh, you could mess around with. And you could probably, you know, put in uh, a few tricks like that if you were writing your own code. But mostly it was just because I thought it was a cool war story from a, a coder. And, all right, the next news item is why build an entire computer on breadboards by Ben Eater. This is a 28-minute video on YouTube. It looks like this guy goes through the process of just taking a breadboard out, actually a couple of them, and starts to put on integrated circuits and wire things together and even analyzes waveforms on an oscilloscope. 
and even goes as far as to try to extract the mathematical formula for the different waveforms. This is a very cool video. Boy, it just seems really good for a half-hour video. I'll have to check it out. It is great, and it goes into detail about cheap breadboards versus quality breadboards for building, because wow. he builds computers on these things, you know, so you don't have as much tolerance for uh, the capacitance and stuff you build up on those. It's a great video. Wow. Yeah. Well, Ben Eater is definitely somebody who's gotten a lot of coverage doing retro and electronics projects um, on YouTube. And uh, it's almost like the current day you know, Ben Heck or, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. or somebody like yeah. that. That's awesome. Cool to see some uh, content. Good work. All right, the next news item is TND LPT is a parallel port sound card that uses the SN76489 sound chip by CertaShop. John, I have a feeling this is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> yeah, so, now, of course, this is for a PC, plugs into a PC-style printer port. This company, CertaShop, has a couple of variations on uh, this sort of sound card. This one in particular, of course, is using the same sound chip that's in the uh, Game Master cartridge, um, but it's also the chip that's compatible with the chip that's used in the Tandy 1000. I think they include a few programs there that um, can be used to um, kind of patch your software, make sure it uses the, right, the proper um, I.O. ports, uh, so that rather than, you know, if it's designed to run on a Tandy 1000 and you run it on a regular PC, it'll put the sound data out through the printer port. They have, like I said, the same company has some similar stuff that has OPL2 and OPL3 sound cards, you know, like I said, sound plugs, sound dongles, or whatever you want to call them. But anyway, I thought it was kind of neat. If you are somebody who has an old PC, maybe wants to play with the Tandy sound chip a little bit, see what it's like, experience it or whatever. Or if you've uh, been using the Game Master cartridge and developed a lot of expertise in the, <laughs> in the SN76489 um, chip, you might want to consider using this on your PC. I don't know. It's mostly there to entertain me, but hopefully you enjoyed reading about it too. <laughs> and you know what? This is one step closer to getting Farfall ported to the X86 platform. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You probably just use the uh, uh, Multani 1000 for that, but sure. Yeah. Well, you know, for the 386 folks, you know. <laughs> Word processing doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be expensive either. All you need is a TRS-80 color computer and Telewriter 64. It's no wonder it's the most popular word processor for the color computer. Telewriter 64's fast, full-screen editor lets you easily type and make corrections. Insert or delete text anywhere. Use advanced features like block, copy, and move. And Telewriter 64's menus are easily accessed from the editor at any time. Printing is a breeze. Use a dot matrix or daisy wheel printer. Telewriter 64 turns your color computer into a professional word processing system. And now it's available at Radio Shack stores everywhere via express order. Find out what so many already know. Telewriter 64, the color computer word processor. New from Maxis Electronics and Software Company. Get up to one megabyte expansion. Introducing the Color Burst. The Color Burst plugs into your color computer and offers incredible features. Six software-selectable expansion ports. Disc controller cartridge connector in the back. Parallel printer interface. 2K pages mapped anywhere. Programmable write protection by page. Programmable timer for single-stepping through ROM routines. Make disk spooling and RAM disks transparent to user programs. OS9 and RS-DOS compatible. The Color Burst comes in five models. 64K, just $570. 128K, $599. 256K, $640. 512K, $700. 
$7.99. And our whopping one megabyte unit is just $9.99. The Colorburst Expansion Unit from Maxis, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The next news item is forget the Arduino and Pi. Use your old PC by Cy Cynical inventing at YouTube. So this is what I would consider killing a fly with a sledgehammer. But <laughs> looks like he takes his uh, an older computer and uses the parallel port to interface to a stepper motor and then writes a program in, I guess, Quick Basic to control it. <laughs> you know, we're in a kind of a weird uh, time of the world or whatever. It's easier to go out and buy the $5 Raspberry Pi or, or Arduino or however much you spend for them. Um, then, uh, you know, but if you do happen to have a, an old PC laying around, you can do a lot of this kind of stuff and, um, you can use a sort of a retro style setup like he's doing. It's kind of the reverse of what got me interested as an adult in going and playing with the cocoa was the idea that I could use the cocoa to hook up to lights and motors and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, using my PC to program things back then. And in this case, now you can go back and use your old PC <laughs> instead. So, I don't know, kind of funny. But Parallel ports were always pretty useful. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame they've completely disappeared in any meaningful way. All right, the next news item is actually an announcement for two products from Michael Furman. He announces Pi Drive Wire version 0.5C, the Easy Install Edition, as well as DW Term version 0.2, ANSI Support Release. So these are two freeware source projects that Mike has been working on. This is a drive wire server written in Python, and DW Term is a terminal that runs under Disk Basic that you can connect to a drive wire server, issue commands, connect to BBSs, and so forth. So uh, good work, Mike. It's good to see DriveWire continuing to be used. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, the ANSI support uh, is great. Have you had a chance to check that out, Neil? Yeah, no, I haven't yet, but uh, I definitely will be. I saw that. Very cool. Awesome. All right, the next news item is Nitrous 9 EOU Beta 5 released by L. Curtis Boyle. This is, of course, the Nitrous 9 project uh, you might call it a distribution or a an addition, I think is what they're calling it, of Nitrous 9. Basically, they bundle a bunch of different games and applications into one uh, easy-to-install or easy-to-use uh, disk image that might, I think, it fits on a Coco SDC. And there's, I think there's some tweaks that have been done to the various components of the OS to make it run faster for 6809 and 6309. So this is an evolutionary release of Nitrous 9 for people who want to start delving into the OS. And that also features the uh, multi-view GUI, so it's very point and click. That's right. <laughs> yeah, very cool. The next news article is, I've adapted some Arduino sketches and created one to convert our old joysticks to USB. And this is from uh, Rick Bagwell. So this is the opposite way around. Uh, you can use <laughs> Cocoa joysticks on uh, on your PC for an emulator. Yeah, well, you hear this come up once in a while. I'm not sure if we've seen. There's probably. Well, I'm not sure if we've seen anybody do it before or not. But this direction, we've seen it the other direction. I know. Seems like people want them for both directions. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, for emulators. Yeah. And if you want to use a Black Beauty to play on your PC, 
Rick has got you sorted. Well, I'm, Very good. I'm interested in using a color mouse on my Mac, so <laughs> this would probably do it. It'd be pretty cool. There you go. I'd love Maybe to we're trying. Yeah, yeah, cool project. Next news article is Gimme X beta release uh, from Ed Snyder. The uh, long-awaited Gimme X is uh, out in the hands for beta testing right now, and uh, he sold a few to select people. Not sure who all got in on the uh, the, the testing. A few a few showing up on the uh, Facebook group there, but uh, it's coming along. Yeah, people have been uh, eager to, for this for whatever reason uh, for, for some time, and uh, you know he's finally got to a point where he's comfortable starting to release, at least to some people. I think some of them might even be uh, working on some software to help it out, to uh, you know, help it do something cool or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of uh, the end of the beginning, uh, <laughs> something like that. It's not quite the end of the story, but it's uh, kind of to the point where it starts to become more real. So cool to see that happening. Yeah, because for a while there wasn't much uh, mention on it, so looks like it's uh, it's coming through. Yeah, yep. and bring it out to Tandy Assembly so we can all see it in person. Definitely. Right. We'd love to see it there, Ed. Definitely. All right, uh, our next news article is episode 293, Dragon Fear 2 on the Tandy Color Computer, MC10, by Jerry Young. Yeah, so this is somebody with a, their own podcast uh, <laughs> and doing a little work with the MC10, working on a game there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice to know there's some other people out there with some love for the MC10, huh? Uh, I was going to yeah. say, other than uh, Jim Gary, uh, yeah, it's nice getting some more support. That's good. Definitely cool. All right, uh, our next news article is Al Alcorn, creator of Pong. I'm sure all of you all of you knew that already. Explains how early home computers owe their color graphics to this one cheap sleazy trick. This is posted by Stephen Cass at IEEE Spectrum. That's so a pretty cool article. So somewhat technical, but um, if you if you don't know the basics of how the NTSC artifacting works, this might help explain it for to you. It might leave you as as confused and as ever, but <laughs> it's something there. And it kind of makes its point through assertion here, at least that you know early home computers owe their color graphics to this one cheap sleazy trick. Well, cheap and sleazy. Well, it's a bit of an editorial, but it is an exploit of the technology. You know, this is something we've dealt with for years, for the the entire time of the Coco. Uh, I remember as a kid, it's like, well, some some games will play, they'll show these two colors, and we don't really know why. It's something funny about how the TV works, or, you know, you get that kind of an explanation. And even now, um, there's the same technique, um, a, a variation of the same technique that leads to the um, the 8-bit color mode on the on the Gimme on the Coco 3 on the NTSC output. Even though I made a video about it explaining how it works or whatever, there's uh, a certain um, prominent member of the community that still kind of just asserts that well, it's not color; it's some kind of junk in the signal that somehow magically shows up as color on some TVs, as if it's just dumb luck, you know? <laughs> and the fact is, whether or not it was intended to be color uh, by whoever put the circuit down there, um, it still shows up as color on the screen, so facts are facts. And it's, uh, and like you say, it's basically the same way that the color worked on the Apple II huh. and um, on this Pong game. And 
all the other stuff. So sometimes it's just a matter of the technology plugs in and unlocks the door, so to speak. It doesn't matter if your if your key is actually a paper clip that's been bent in a certain shape if the door still unlocks. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my take. Yeah, that's great. Read the article yourself. See what you think. Next news article is new game for your MC10. Car Race Win by Jim Gary. Jim Gary? Who is that? <laughs> what platform is this for, pray tell? <laughs> he's got uh he's got a full walkthrough on this one or a playthrough i should say uh playthrough to a win it said here he's got his son charlie can uh spice it up when he gets home that's pretty cool you can check that out on youtube here from our link uh next one is rainbow adventure from jim gary <laughs> and this was a uh, type in adventure from the uh, july 1982 issue of rainbow magazine for the tandy color computer so he's got that uh, converted over for the MC-10. Looks pretty cool. Yep. And the last one, Chairman of the Board by Tim Hartnell. And it's also from Jim Gary. This was a uh, type of program from the VZ-200 Giant Book of Games. Uh, that's by, yeah, by uh, Tim Hartnell and Glenn Pringle. And uh, that's also ported over to the MC-10. Pretty cool. I thought, it was gonna be about, I thought it was going to be about Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I'll make the MC-10 sing to you. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, so oh, he's, Lord. He's been busy. As always. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was putting this together. It's like, wait, there's no Jim Gary titles in this. What, what's going on? And all of a sudden, bam, bam, bam. Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time. That's right. Yeah, exactly. This one is definitely in the not a, not a Coco category, but it could be. So it says, uh, I put together a tool, 7800 Heat, that can be used for performance analysis of 7800 games. And this is from um, Revenge at Atari Age. So I don't know the real name there, sorry. but <laughs> Sorry, Revenge, but uh, you, know, you know who you are. So what is this? So this is kind of a cool tool he's put together that um, says if you run your game in uh, A7800 emulation of MAME, with tracing turned on, logs all the executed instructions to a trace file. And then this tool will take the trace file and generate an HTML disassembly and it'll colorize the lines based on how often they're encountered. What is a tool like this used for? Well, it's a profiling tool or, or it could be a debugging tool. Basically, it just illustrates where, where your program actually spends its time. I'm sure you can see how this is useful for, for improving the performance of a program. Yeah. Uh, or in some cases, um, if you have lockups or something, that will tell you where your program's locking up. So anyway, you should be able to use the, that same kind of capability, but with a, a Cocoa emulation in MAME, and uh, generate a similar program or similar output for your Cocoa program. So it's kind of like a programming challenge for those of you who are looking for something to do. <laughs> And uh, I think it'd be a cool tool to have. It would be. There you go. The gauntlet is thrown. Well, thank you, Revenge. So moving on. This is from Christopher Heiser on the Facebook Color Computer Group. He puts up a picture. It was, it was back in 2002, I bought Cloud9's OS9 Level 2 ROM kit for a project that I didn't end up finishing. This week, I finally got around to trying it out. <laughs> 
So, I don't know, Boise, you know anything about these Osteen Level 2 ROM kits? Yes, I do. I created them. <laughs> so, cool very video. cool. Yeah, it's good to see somebody running through that. It's a neat idea. You know, the the, Nitro, the OS9 uh, operating system that uh, Nitrous 9 inherits from, and I had that. It was kind of built for the living in ROM. Um, yeah. It was almost taking it out of its native environment by putting it uh, onto diskette for the Coco. Maybe not quite, but... <laughs> But yeah, it's just, what inspired you to to, to uh, go through that exercise years ago of kind of forcing it back into a, a ROM form there, Boise? Yeah, I, so I was experimenting with interfacing my Coco 3 to my pickup truck at the time, and uh, obviously wasn't going to be able to tow it around a disk drive in a pickup truck. So devised a way, studying the source code to OS 9 level 2, devised a way to fit it into ROM and basically turn it into a turn the Coco 3 into a ROM based OS 9 system. Pretty cool. It's an, a different way to boot things up and it may not be appropriate for every application. <laughs> but no. uh, it's it's kind of a cool way to experiment and do something it's, different. It's one of those products that I've made for the Coco pretty much like every every other product. I made it because I had a need for it and I found out that other people might have a need for it too. So it was inspired yep. by just my own desire to do it. Very cool. It's, it's cool to see the uh, OS 9 pop up so quickly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, it was cool to see. I watched the video. It was cool to see uh, Christopher do that. It's kind of neat to take yeah. a product that's, what, 18 years old and start using <laughs> it again. <laughs> no, that, but it gives, it gives you faith because we all got have projects that are sitting on our back shelf that we just haven't yeah. had time to get to. So that's right. Finally <laughs> yeah. got one. Yay. No, I've never <laughs> bought anything. And set it aside and then not use it. It's never happened. Now, now just I've never question. bought two or three of the same thing and not used them by accident. Yeah. Now, just a question for oh, the listeners. Yeah. Um, is that product still being offered if somebody wants it? No. Uh, like other things, I open-sourced it, and it's actually part of the Nitrous 9 project. I think you can actually... Um, can make it through Nitrous Nine. Oh, cool! Yeah, I think they're right. around. Yeah, I think I, I think I did that exercise at one point, uh, going from the Nitrous Nine stuff. So I think there's enough information that you could do, figure it out yourself if, uh, if you really want to. Yeah, if not, and if you can't uh, figure it out yourself, uh, uh, then yeah. contact Boise. No, yeah. well, exactly. <laughs> somebody. No. It, would, it wouldn't be a bad idea to put up a readme about it somewhere though. Since 1994, Cloud9 has made cool stuff for your color computer. Now Cloud9 is proud to announce the 2MB Triad Plus Memory Expansion Board. The Triad Plus works in two ways. Purchase just the Triad Plus board to expand your color computer 3 from 128K to 512K of RAM. Or add the new Protector Plus MMU to access the full 2MB of static RAM aboard the Triad Plus. And the Protector Plus MMU utilizes full buffering to protect your CPU. Unlike previous 2MB memory expansions for the Coco 3, the Triad Plus operates seamlessly without the need for special patches, configuration, or workarounds. Games like Donkey Kong Remix and Sierra Adventure games simply work without hassle. And the Triad Plus will reduce your Coco's power consumption and heat generation. The Triad Plus and Protector Plus MMU, only from the innovative engineering of Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. This week, the Coco Crew podcast is brought to you by Gimme Crisp Cereal. Most any cereal is fine with me. 
As long as you spell it G-I-M-E Magenta, red, buff, yellow and green Keeps your mind sharp and your body lean Start your day right with a delicious bowl of Gimme Crisp cereal Crispy oat O's with colors of the Tandy Color Computer Served with milk and juice, it's part of a complete breakfast And moms love its three vitamins and herbs And for a limited time, you can get one of five Color Computer program packs free Just send $3 handling and five box tops from specially marked boxes of Gimme Crisp Choose from Clowns and Balloons, Adam, Bingo Math, Color Backgammon, and Dino Wars Magenta red buff, yellow and green Keeps your mind sharp and your body lean Gimme Crisp some of you may be aware that there's a Intellivision company. I guess this is still the direct heir of the original Intellivision. Anyway, one way or another, there's a, a modern version of the Intellivision that um, people are trying to, to breathe some life into. They call it the Amico uh, game console. And so this is a press release uh, announcing that they've got a, a new global managing director. Somebody who's worked at Microsoft and on Xbox. But then down in here it says, uh, a lifelong gamer, Allard. Uh, this is uh, Jay Allard. Uh, yeah, Jay Allard. <laughs> Apparently he just uses Jay. Uh, it's like you know the artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> a lifelong gamer, Allard grew up with the original Intellivision and published his first game, Lemonade Stand, in the early 80s for the TRS-80 color computer. So there you go. Uh, hometown boy made good, uh, so to speak. <laughs> so if uh, you weren't already dying to buy a, a modern television Amico, well, now you've got a reason. Very cool. So this one is from uh, Terry Trapp, who's posting a bit about uh, his, um, he calls Mr. Dash, is a salt replacement. In this case, salt is the uh, serial and level translator. Uh, is that what it stands for? Anyway, the custom ship in the Coco 2s and 3s. Supply and um, level translator. There you go, supply and level translator. Basically, he's got a, he's putting together a replacement with uh, some discrete components, um, voltage regulators and that sort of thing. And so he's been putting it together and testing it out, and uh, it's cool. It's... Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm pretty sure they're not making any salt chips anymore. I heard not too long ago there was some place you could still order them, but I think those are all gone by now too. There might be someone in the community who has some if you dig around. But otherwise, this replacement for the chip may be uh, your best option if you're trying to bring back to life a beloved Coco 2. Pretty cool. All right, moving on. The next one, uh, Adventures in Embossing Using 3D Printed Molds. And this is from Chris Burke. So this is a, kind of a different take on the, hey, I've got a 3D printer, look what I can do with it. <laughs> um, in this case, he's 3D printed, um, uh, the, he called them molds. Uh, you might call them stamps. Um, and the 3D printed plastic, basically flat hunks of plastic with uh, raised letters on them. Uh, or raised letters on one and a relief uh, that matches it on the other side. And he's basically taken a, a thin piece of metal and squeezed it between these two and produced a piece of metal with a raised um, logo. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure how useful it is in, in the, the greater scheme of things, but if you need to make an embossed piece of metal, it's a pretty cool way to do it. 
And I don't know, maybe you'll be in competition with uh, with you, Mike, uh, making uh, badges for Kogo 3s. <laughs> don't think that the pretty nice. modes will hold up to the numbers that we've done, but. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, yeah, never know. <laughs> cool idea. Um, nice to see somebody. Like I say, I, this is part of the theme this month is uh, people doing crafty stuff, I guess, with the vinyl cutters and, uh, and 3D printed uh, embossing molds. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Fun. I don't think I've, I've ever seen anyone else doing that, or I've never run across it. But interesting. Yeah, very cool. So here's a book on Amazon. You can buy a brand new paperback, $5.99, from uh, Jerry Stratton. This sounds really familiar. I think we may have covered this in an earlier episode. Uh, Super Basic for the TRS-80 color computer. What it appears to me is that Super Basic is one of those deals where somebody has kind of created a um, kind of a uh, a more modern uh, syntax of basic or, you know, a collection of, you know, more modern practices or, or whatever, like looping constructs and that sort of thing. So that you write in this super basic language and he's got some kind of tool that then translates it into something that you can load on the color computer then and execute on the um, uh, extended color basic ROMs. And so it's kind of give you a somewhat more modern programming, programming environment. Uh, running on your 30-year-old uh, cocoa. And uh, like I said, it's a book. You can order it, and it'll show up at your door and, and smell like paper and everything. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's um, very, very interesting. I ordered a copy. Did you? Yeah. Curious to see, uh, did you get an opinion on that? Yeah, I'll let you know. It'd be cool. All right. So here's one from Paris Charette. Um, Pear's um, big in the dragon world. Pear, of course, is a f part of the team that was uh, converting all those uh, arcade game designer um, games, essentially written for the ZX Spectrum, ZX Spectrum, and uh, converted to where they run on the Coco or Dragon. Anyway, so here he just says, um, yeah, I'm uploading here the source file for the DOS Plus 5.0 extended so that anyone could use it in full extent or part of it. So DOS Plus is one of the, um, you know, it's like the equivalent of Disk Extended Color Basic, but for um, running on the Dragon. <laughs> In particular, if you want to run with the Coco SDC on the Dragon, uses DOS Plus 5.0 Extended. So, good news if you're a Dragon Basic uh, ROM hacker. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's not a big enough uh, group, but <laughs> um it, uh, I can see where uh, possibly find use for this at some point in some future project. Probably somebody else can too. So very cool. Thank you, Pear, or uh, gracias, as uh, you know, <laughs> as the uh, as the, the locals would say, right? Moving on. Let's see. Got one more up here from Paul Thayer. Says I've created a library for 60 to 9 assembly routines on GitHub. So if you're not familiar with GitHub, you're probably not working as a professional programmer. <laughs> but uh, if you are, uh, GitHub, of course, is a repository for um, using the uh, the Git source control program and to uh, for sharing uh, code across the world. Don't see it. There are a few Cocoa-related projects out there. Uh, Jim Brain puts most of his stuff out on GitHub, I think. 
But there's not a ton of stuff on GitHub for the Cocoa, but uh, there probably should be more. And uh, so here Paul has uh, got a few things out there. They're like snippets of code. So he's got um, uh, the 256 by 192 by 16 screen in it. And so he's got just enough assembly code there that uh, you can have your assembly program um, put itself into that graphics mode and then go from there. That's pretty cool. So it's cool, helpful. If you're looking for some help getting started on some assembly language, this is probably not a bad place to start looking. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Paul. Good opportunity to learn GitHub, too. There's some, uh, it's not yeah. hard to learn. There's a, there's some really good tutorials out there for free. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so this one's probably my favorite of the group. <laughs> not strictly speaking a Cocoa, not even actually a Cocoa project per se, but uh, maybe uh, maybe you'll figure out that it's not so unfamiliar to things we've talked about before. Uh, Ed Mentoni? Mentoni? I have no idea. Ed, if you're listening, <laughs> let us know how you pronounce your name. Um, you know, he says, this, my friends, is an accomplishment 30-plus years in the making. He bought a copy of Zork, actually Starcross, for his Osborne running CPM. And um, somewhere else he obtained uh, some, a Zork data file, did some manipulation uh, of the disk contents. And um, long story short, he ended up with uh, uh, Zork 1 running on his Osborne. Uh, and he was so excited, he actually went ahead and made a Zork one label and put it on the diskette. <laughs> so now he's got a Zork one diskette for his Osborne. This is kind of the same sort of story we've talked about in the past with uh, taking um, the um, Infocom games and, uh, and putting them on a Cocoa. You know, you can take games from other sources that, that use the, the Infocom interpreter and get those on the Cocoa. And anyway... Um, <laughs> Just a, a little reminder that this uh, this kind of project is out there. If you want to play Infocom games on your Coco, if you want more information, just, um, I don't have the episode number in hand, but uh, I'm sure you can find it in our in our in our back catalog. And if you can't, send me a, an email and I'll help you find it. All right. Well, that's the end of our uh, news segment. Uh, just in time. It sounds like my voice may be starting to give out. <laughs> so. <laughs> Why don't we take a little break, and then we'll be back with some feedback. From the nation's capital, the Coco Group, an unrehearsed program presenting inside opinions and forecasts on major issues of the day. Tandy is proud to support the Coco Group. From multi-packs to game cartridges, Tandy, because there is no better value. And now, your moderator. Issue 1, COVID Coco. The 29th Annual Glenside Coco Fest, set for April 18th and 19th of 2020, has been postponed due to the outbreak of the coronavirus and the disease that it causes, COVID-19. This global pandemic has impacted not only Coco Fest, but other retrocomputing gatherings around the country. Question. Will Cocoa Fest be held this year? John. I would really like to say yes, but my gut says no at this point. There might be something, but it probably won't be the kind of event that will draw a big crowd. Neil. Well, I'd like to be optimistic and think there really will be a Cocoa Fest this year, but unfortunately, it is highly unlikely. 
with all the events having to be canceled or rescheduled. I just can't see it being easy to rent a banquet hall until the following year. Mike. Well, that's the question of the week, isn't it? I sure hope there's a Cocoa Fest this year, but the answer to that really lies with the Glenside leadership. If they decide to have it, I hope they have a full version and not some watered-down event. I think it'd be better to skip it than to do that. The answer is, Cocoa Fest will be deferred until 2021, where it will be called the first annual Cocovid Fest. Issue 2, Virtually There. In light of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, several retrocomputing conferences have opted to hold online versions of their canceled or postponed events. Facilitating this trend is the use of virtual conferencing software, allowing anyone to join from the comfort of their home. Gone are the long drives, flights, rental cars, and hotel stays. Some are saying that a new era of virtual retrocomputing events has arrived and will thrive. Question. Will the virtual trend upend and replace traditional in-person retrocomputing events? John. I don't think it will replace them in the long run. Those of us who go to the events really like the in-person aspect, I think. I still want to go. I don't think I'm the only one. Neil. I don't think the virtual trend will ever replace a real live retro computer event for the plain simple fact that people like to touch and use the computers and projects on display. You also don't have that instant gratification on purchasing items for sale, let alone the auctions held at a lot of these retro events. Mike. Virtual conferences are nothing new, but they're a pale comparison to a real event. One of the big benefits of traveling to an event is that you get to leave everything behind and simply live in the moment. You don't have to worry about normal life interfering. Not only is that fun, but it's really therapeutic. In-person events will resume once the pandemic subsides, but the virtual conference is here to stay. Predictions. John. Sightings of wild turkeys in and around Glenside-related events will continue for the foreseeable future. Neil. Coco Cat will make an appearance at Coco Fest one of these years. Mike. Faux leather Bermuda shorts become the rage. Brother Jeremy will triumphantly return from the UK just in time to vote in the November election for President Donald J. Trump. Next month, stepping on toes. Does it hurt? Bye-bye. So what did you want to show me? Check this out. I do this poke and the printer is now at 9600. Yeah, that's a popular one. And I wrote this little program to do all these pokes to give me access to 40 track drives. Yeah. And this one lets me access both sides of the drive. Okay. And this utility automatically creates line numbers for me in basic. You do know that all these things are built into ADOS, don't you? Huh? Have you been living in a cave somewhere? ADOS adds all sorts of cool functions to your color computer. All the things you described and more. It even supports true lowercase on the new Coco 2s. You're kidding me. ADOS adds things like repeat keys so you can edit your last command, DOS command for OS 9, error trapping in BASIC, there's a RAM command to run in full RAM mode, two column disk directories, keyword abbreviation, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of the features of ADOS. That sounds easier than all these pokes and short utility programs. You better believe it. And ADOS comes with an easy-to-use configuration program. You just run it, enable the things you want, ignore what you don't want. That sounds great. You can run ADOS from disk, or you can have ADOS create a ROM image, and you can just burn that onto a ROM and put it on your disk controller, so it boots up right into ADOS every time you boot your Coco. Imagine, you never have to set your baud rate again. Wow, that's amazing. Will it work with my Coco 1? ADOS works with both Coco 1 and Coco 2 systems, and it's available for just $27.95. You'll wonder how you ever lived without it. Supercharge your color computer with ADOS from Spectro Systems. Spectro Systems, Miami, Florida.
All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. Now it's time for some feedback. Let's see, the first one up today is from John Federico. I think John must be a fairly new listener, just based on that I don't quite recognize his name and just the tone of his uh, feedback. He says, great podcast. I really like the format. Having the summary notes is fantastic. I'm amazed you find the time every month to put this together. <laughs> John, so am I. <laughs> um, I know it. Uh, it can it can be a labor of love for sure. That uh, uh, do enjoy it for the most part, but uh, like you said, it's, it's, I appreciate you recognizing it does take some effort. So um, thank you. I'm glad you enjoy the show. Appreciate you to uh, send us some feedback and letting us know. Next piece uh, comes from um, Terry Steen, and uh, Terry Steen says. Um, I love your show as a compact and concise download of Coco knowledge. Thank you, Terry. I think that's a, a nice, nice thing to say. Getting recognition of uh, what uh, we try to be in the in the in the world. Thank you. Appreciate your recognition. And uh, like I said, we we do try to put on a good show. Try not to waste uh, your time or ours. <laughs> so, again, thanks for the feedback. All right. Third piece of feedback is um this, this comes from uh, Adam Triunfo. I think I'm saying that right. Adam sent kind of a lengthy one. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, he listened to the podcast on and off for a couple of years. But he talks a little bit about the, um, the APF MP1000, which has a 6847 video chip. You know, kind of shooting the shooting the breeze with us a little bit. Uh, so let's go back to why I'm writing you. It's episode 58 show notes is article hacking Astro Battle on the uh, Bally Astrocade is mentioned. And uh, so he, uh, it's pretty conversational. It talks about, um, you know, doing the hacking and the ROM hacking. It mentions how I've said I'm surprised we don't see more of that on the Coco, which I am. But it's, uh, like I said, mostly just positive feedback. Does he like Neil's review of Gunstar? <laughs> pretty good, uh, pretty friendly response. I enjoy reading it. And um, see, the, what was the quote I actually put out here? It says, um, for some reason, don't ask me why, I can't explain the reason. The strange, idiosyncratic colors are just enough that they are attracted to me in their own way. <laughs> Obviously, it's talking about the uh, 6847 VDG. <laughs> anyway, sorry for rambling a little bit on uh, this, but... Um, Adam, it's good to hear from you. Uh, Adam, of course, uh, does the Bally Alley podcast uh, on uh, the uh, Bally Astrocade. If you're looking for uh, another podcast, that's one to check out. And uh, he does good work there. So we got one here from Tony Capolini. Tony actually was uh, the person who introduced us or made the introduction for uh, Lance Leventhal, who was one of our first interviews. Seems Tony's perspective may have changed over the time, over the years. Let's see. Uh, he says, quote, um, I got tired of John's dismissive attitude of others' projects and ambitions, and parentheses, and I know I'm not alone here. I ditched the Coco crew over a year ago, no regrets. There are plenty of other podcasts out there where people are friendly and supportive. You dug your own grave, John. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, thanks so much for that frank um, um, feedback, Tony. 
Um, you know, uh, I'm I'm sure this is one of those where uh, just having this on and or um, responding is some one way or another is going to get me in trouble. So I'll just be true to myself here. So you say uh, I'm di my dismissive attitude of others' projects and ambitions. I just, uh, you know, this is one of those. If if we were on Wikipedia here, I'd, I'd definitely put in a bracket which says citation needed, and I just don't agree with the notion that I've somehow dismissed the people's projects. Uh, we have heard uh, this feedback, this, this, as the essence of this come up once or twice. As far as I know, it always comes back to where somebody will have a project, and uh, occasionally there'll be a project in our news section, Then uh, I'll say something like, well, there you go. Uh, if that interests you, then uh, go check it out. Um, it's not really my thing, but I hope you enjoy yourself. Uh, some people don't don't like that approach. <laughs> I don't say it to hurt anyone's feelings. We're not paid to do this. <laughs> this is a hobby for us, too. We're not obligated to cover anyone's project. We try to cover projects as much as we can. That's sort of the whole purpose of the podcast along with the encouraging people to go to Cocoa Fest in the first place, was also to, um, to cover people's projects when they post something because too often we get silence. Well, if I say, it's a you know, I hope you like the project, or, or if you like it, there you go, check it out. It's just not for me. I'm not ignoring your podcast. <laughs> or I'm sorry, I'm not ignoring your project. Now, keep in mind, for the most part, if your project's mentioned in our news section, it's because I put it there. <laughs> so, so if I if I just didn't want, if I just didn't like your project, I could just not put it there. Clearly, there are people who take my thing that a project's not for me as a personal attack or an affront on their project or whatever. It's not my intent. I'm sorry that that happens or that that, 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 that some people feel that that's what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Just saying exactly what the words say. It's not for me, but I hope somebody else gets some pleasure out of it. Anyway, Tony, I know you're not listening. <laughs> you said you're not. Uh, you ditched us over a year ago. There are other people who may have had this uh, that have still managed to listen to the show. If this, if you share Tony's uh, view that when I say project's not for me, but if it's a, if it's for you, then go and have fun with it. If you feel that, um, well. If you feel that that's me insulting their project, I'm sorry. We just I just disagree with you. Um, now, if you feel that this is me somehow rejecting our criticism and being terrible and throwing a tantrum and whatever, well, <laughs> um, people say what they want to say, uh, you know, whatever. If anything, what I think this shows is we do love to get your feedback, whether it's positive or not. You don't want to be in our feedback segment well i guess <laughs> you could say don't publish the feedback but other than that we do love to get your feedback thank you tony for taking the time to uh to submit your opinion i don't like that you've taken things this way that, that this is the way you see them i do like knowing that there are people who feel that so i appreciate you sharing that with me as they say feedback is a gift so thank you for giving yours thank you also uh, uh, to uh, adam and terry and john and anybody else who's out there if you want to be part of our feedback segment, or even if you don't want to be part of the segment, but you still want to let us know what you think, feel free to send us some of your feedback to, well, feedback at cocoacrew.org. 
That's a F E E D B A C K at D O C O C R E W dot O R G. And I threw that in that spelling because I heard that there was somebody who said they didn't like to hear me spell. <laughs> <laughs> More feedback. <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, I hope you can take all this in the good humor it's intended in. If not, well, God bless you anyway. So with that said, we're going to take another little break, and we'll be back uh, with the rest of the show. This month in Cocoa History. Welcome to This Month in Cocoa History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we go back 32 years to the 1988 Chicago Rainbow Fest, held May 20 to 22nd of that year at the Hyatt Regency Woodfield in Schaumburg, Illinois. The September 1988 issue of the Rainbow Magazine documents the event. Speech Systems opened the show with the Star Spangled Banner. Tickets were $9 for the three-day event or $7 each day. If you wanted to sit in for the Saturday morning cocoa breakfast, where Kip Bryan, vice president of General Videotex Corporation, spoke on online communications, that would set you back $12. A single or double occupancy room at the Hyatt Regency Woodfield was $64 a night. The fest was filled with interesting offerings. In the entertainment area, Dave Dye's Iron Forest light gun game drew a crowd, while Steve Bjork demonstrated his 3D glasses-based Warp Fighter 3D. Serious Cocoa users saw the introduction of SirComp's Window Master windowing system for Disk Basic. Chris Burke of Burke & Burke showed off his XT hard drive system and companion Hyper-IO Basic environment. Disto introduced its no-halt floppy disk controller, the SuperController 2. Glenside, who would later take over the fests, lended a hand selling Rainbow Fest t-shirts. The educational sandbox featured child-oriented workshops for kindergartners all the way through 7th grade. The Coco Gallery live event showcased the best of the best digital art creations in two categories, Coco 1 and 2 graphics and Coco 3 graphics. And who couldn't forget that frisky feline Coco Cat, who walked the show floor for everyone's entertainment. Chicago would go on to host three more Rainbow Fests, up to the very last one in 1991. The 1988 show was considered by many as the apex of the Coco 3's popularity, as it would go on to be canceled only two years later. And that's this month in Coco History. Coco Tuner makes tuning musical instruments a breeze. Precise enough for concert piano tuning. Easy to use for music students and teachers. The Coco Tuner plugs into the cartridge slot of your color computer. Connect a microphone to the cartridge and you're ready to tune. A pitch comparison is displayed on your Coco screen. Bands indicate whether you are below or above the correct frequency. Accurate within 0.003 hertz of middle C, Coco Tuner can be used to tune any musical instrument. Coco Tuner, just $89 from Real-Time Specialties Incorporated, Gypsilanti, Michigan. Coco Cruisers, welcome to our host discussion. So we're going to have a little talk, toss around a little bit, um, a few minutes here at the end of the evening. Many of us are familiar with the term homebrew or particular homebrew software. Uh, the term itself, homebrew, of course, originated with people making beer at home, you know, literally brewing beer at home as opposed to a commercial beer. But it's been used for a long time for in the computer world, but dating back you know, in the 70s to the Homebrew Computer Club, 
which, you know, in some ways spawned a modern Silicon Valley or whatever. But it's also used for homebrew software, generally meaning, uh, well, the general meaning would probably imply just software made by somebody other than the original device manufacturer. So particularly like a cartridge for a video game not made by the video game manufacturer. But it could mean a lot of things, and it it can mean could mean just a couple of guys playing around in their back room or whatever. So some people think the term homebrew, when when applied to software, implies something slapdash, something sloppy, something you know unprofessional, whatever. And then other people, particularly people who object to the term homebrew. Point at modern software for old computers, stuff made for like, um, well, like the, some of the games you get for like the Atari Jaguar or the the um, even the Sega Dreamcast that uh, are as nice and as professional as anything that was ever released commercially for those products, and the, it doesn't seem fair to them to refer to that as homebrew because it belittles the, the product or whatever. As for, for me, I'm someone who's produced software for the color computer on cartridge, uh, you know, in the in the 21st century. Definitely not Tandy stuff. Some people would call it homebrew. I call it homebrew. I think it's fine. But I have heard of people in the community that similarly have produced software, even in the 21st century on cartridge, and they don't like the term homebrew, and they want to call it, I think I've heard the term cocoa brew or uh, something like that. So, I guess this is, of course, it's just a host here talking. But do you think the term homebrew, you know, is it a bad word? Is it also does it imply something sloppy or, or unprofessional, or maybe it's a good word? Maybe it implies something that's done uh, as a labor of love or as something that um, the people have done to express themselves, almost like a piece of art. So probably I've already revealed that uh, <laughs> I, I like the term homebrew. You know, if you want to call my software homebrew, well, that's what I think. That's what I think it is: is homebrew. And just like I've had beers made at home um, by by friends that were just as good as anything you'd get from Gordon Beers to whoever else, I've also had beers made at home by me or other people that were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably true too with homebrew software. There's homebrew software for the cocoa or other machines that uh, is terrible, and there's homebrew software that's pretty good. I don't think either one means that the word itself is tainted, but that's just me, and that's just my my opinion. What do you guys think? I don't mind the term homebrew myself. You know, I'm not just saying that because of you, but I think basically what it relates to is a time period. Um, you know, if you go back in time and you look at Cocoa Software, I mean, you could almost say that back in the day that, you know, those third-party companies releasing games from the rain, advertising the Rainbow Magazine, not sold at Radio Shack, that's kind of technically what homebrew is today. At least that's how I see it. And those are some of the best games. So, uh, you know, given that, I, I think, you know, a lot of the homebrew stuff now is, uh, is fantastic. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, to be put in the same category as a, you know, a Dave dies or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah. that that's no insult to me. Um 
Oh, I agree. Homebrew is, is not a bad word. I mean, all it means is homemade, right? So, look, there's a lot of people out there in the community. Uh, the guy who works as a chef during the day comes home. I bet he makes a really good meal at home. Yeah. So that's that's what we have. Uh, you know, we have people that, that uh, develop things for the color computer, and they, they apply their skills, and, you know, they're better than the things that we got from Tandy's. Certainly the games, like you were talking about, the best games for the Coco weren't developed by – by Tandy, they were uh, they were homebrew. Yeah, yeah. So uh, since you brought up definitions, I just googled for a couple. I've got one from it just says dictionary. Uh, I'm not sure where that's coming from, but it starts with beer or other alcoholic drink brewed at home. But then it says informal, just means made at home rather than in a store or factory. That definitely, and it even says homebrew software. So definitely, <laughs> in that sense, uh, software made at home fits that. And I don't think that software made at home is automatically somehow inferior. Um, in fact, as an open source developer, I know that some of the best software <laughs> out there uh, has been made uh, somewhere other than at a software factory or whatever. Here's another definition. It says homebrew, uh, says subtitle video games. The homebrew is a term frequently applied to video games or other software produced by consumers to target proprietary hardware platforms that are not typically user programmable or that use proprietary storage methods. Now, with that definition, it kind of tightens it up, and there's almost uh, it almost excludes all Cocoa software, <laughs> since since it's you know it definitely is software or a platform that was designed to be user programmable. Uh, you might say it can only be homebrew if it's a cartridge. And now, there's an interesting take, right? <laughs> since that's a proprietary storage methods, sort of almost. So that'd be a different take on it, um, but uh, I think that's probably unnecessarily restrictive. But uh, I definitely like the made at home rather than a store or factory. So yeah, makes sense to me. If there's any listeners out there who think that that's a derogatory term, we'd like to hear your take on it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would like to hear that. In fact, feel free to send audio feedback on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, that'd be cool. But uh, I definitely don't see um, any implied insult by calling something homebrew, at least not in the modern uh, the, the state of the hobby, uh, shall we say. I don't, I don't think it's derogatory at all. Boise, you got anything to say? I'm not offended by the term. I don't know what why anybody would be. It's like picking pepper out of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that probably... May not quite have beat that one to death, but uh, we definitely have uh, seen the end of the discussion, I think. I'm going to add one other quick thing oh. in there before we close this off. You know, All right. going back to developing something at home, you know, maybe on your own or a small team versus, you know, something commercial that we classified not as homebrew, even if you apply that today, it's so true. Like, you look at the games now that are offered on, say, Steam, you know, that's a big game network. A lot of the independent games... I, I find they're, they're they're way better, you know. Like I mean, these big game companies, you know, they they keep releasing the same thing. They do they rehash the same thing every year, but it's nothing it's nothing new and innovative. Whereas the independent stuff, the homebrew stuff, that's where the innovation is coming from. 
and gets, you know, quality titles. So I just kind of want to throw that blurb out there that, you know, when I hear the word homebrew, I think it's something really good. So that's just... Yeah, I guess that's where I'm at too, which is why when I've heard people act like staying homebrew was somehow insulting, it it just never clicked with me. It just never made much sense. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm prepared for other people to to see things different ways or, or... especially to have their own reasons, and I'd love to hear them. I'd like to understand. Yeah, same here. All right. Well, then, uh, as Mike suggested, uh, if uh, if homebrew is a, a term that you find uh, derogatory or offensive, uh, we definitely would like to hear your perspective. Whether you want to do so in writing or audio, uh, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, I think that's the end of this discussion uh, for this episode of the Coco Crew Podcast. <laughs> Why don't we uh, cut this discussion short and um, move on with whatever else we have for the rest of the show. For versatile, powerful word processing on the Coco 3, look no further than Word Power 3. Written in 100% machine language, no other word processor offers the speed, power, or flexibility of Word Power 3. Editing is effortless with Word Power 3. Access the help screen anytime. Features include split screen editing, mail merge, on screen two column print, spell checker, punctuation checker, and a built in four function calculator accessible while you edit. Printing is a breeze with Word Power 3's built in print spooler. No more waiting on your printer. Print a large job while you work on another. Word Power 3 provides for up to 72K of text on a 128K system and over 450K of text on a 512K system. That's more text than any other Coco 3 word processor. WordPower includes a quick reference card and full instruction manual for just $79.95. Step up to the power and versatility of professional Coco 3 word processing software. Step up to WordPower 3 from Microcom Software. See music on your color computer with Kaleidophone. The Kaleidophone plugs into the two joystick ports of your color computer. Then connect your hi-fi stereo system. The music that your color computer hears is transformed into breathtaking animated graphics on your television. It's great for parties, meditation, and education. Kaleidophone's dedicated hardware lets your color computer devote full time for graphics generation. It continuously delivers 64 volume levels in stereo. Do not confuse Kaleidophone with imitations. The Kaleidophone is really something new. It's only $49.95 fully assembled and includes a detailed instruction booklet. Plus, get a free issue of Kaleidophonics on cassette, our user's newsletter. Each issue contains dozens of new displays and display ideas. The Kaleidophone from New Salem Research, New Salem, Mass. All right, welcome Coco Cruisers. This, of course, is John Linville bringing this to you from uh, <laughs> as I take a little break from the family on our quick trip out to Myrtle Beach uh, on the Memorial Day. Uh, time to get the podcast going. I uh, haven't quite done this tech segment yet, so well, here I am now. This one is a little meatier than some of the past. Uh, might be a little more difficult to follow for some. Apologize, it is, does go along with the territory a bit. Uh, it is OS9 related after all. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sure we'll get through it together. Uh, you can ask some questions later if you like. Please save all questions till the end. <laughs> all right, so what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about something called See No Why. Uh, so, what is that, you might ask? How many of you have heard of it? Uh, yeah, go ahead, raise your hands. I see you, that one in the back. We know who you are. Um, but seriously, 
uh, what is seen in a while. So I'm maybe, I don't know, largely forgotten uh, thing. I saw um, recently, it was mentioned by um, uh, Jeff Tunison. I think that's a close approximation of the pronunciation. And Jeff, uh, I know you're not shy. If I mispronounce your name, let me know. Um, anyway, he posted something on uh, the Coco multimedia uh, mailing list. And uh, so Jeff has been uh, taking, there's some pirate, oh, well, there's some source code out there for what seems to be the C compiler for um, OS 9 that uh, has been worked and reworked a bit. It can be built into a cross uh, compiler that runs on Linux or whatever to target the uh, 6809 uh, that's used in, of course, the color computer. And uh, he and, uh, well, I think there's someone else doing a similar project, whatever. So Jeff uh, kind of pops out out of nowhere. Well, not quite nowhere, but anyway, he pops up and says something about he's uh, looking at the CNOI functionality and um, asking, uh, well, he says he thinks it might be easier, rather than re-implementing CNOI, it might be easier to just flip a switch inside the actual compiler itself and uh, asking what people think about that. And so <laughs> I suspect... A lot of well, so I know there wasn't a lot of response on the list. I suspect it's because a lot of people have no idea what CNOI is anyway. So that's what this is about. What is CNOI? Where did it start? So uh, there's another character from the past of the color computer uh, named um, Mike um, Knudsen. It's K-N-U-D-S-E-N. Knudsen. Mike, if you're listening, um, well, first, what an honor. And if you are, <laughs> um, please uh, let me know if I'm mispronouncing your name. It's certainly not intentional. Okay, so Mike so Mike was a fellow behind um, the Ultimuse um, program back in the day. Uh, Ultimuse, in particular Ultimuse 3, did a lot of nifty stuff underneath the covers. Uh, so he's a bit of an expert on uh, how to make OS 9 programs cool and fast and whatever. Anyway, if we rewind back to, um, uh, well, let's say circa 1994, roughly the middle of 1994, he uh, wrote a tool, this tool called CNOI. This tool runs as a part of the, the C compiler chain. And so what I mean is, if you're familiar with how the C compiler runs, uh, rather than being one big program, it actually splits its work up across several smaller executables. They all work together, so arguably you could say it's still the same program overall, but in terms of packaging, several smaller executables, and they run as a, a set of filters. You have like the C preprocessor will run, uh, it processes the input file and makes a few changes here and there based on some of the statements therein, passes it on to the next stage, and on through, um, is there one or two compiler stages? There's an optimization stage, so the compilers produce um, assembly source. The optimization um, rifles through the assembly source, and she makes changes here and there. Until finally it comes out um, and um, hits the assembler, and the assembler produces an object, and the object gets to the linker, and um, you know finally you get the executable. Right? So, so what does CNOI? So it slips in there um, somewhere after the compiler stage before the assembler stage then the notes say something about it goes before the optimization stage too but it works a, a bit like the optimizer where it takes the assembler source and it makes some changes 
and then it just passes it on as if nothing ever happened. So the later parts of the state of the uh, chain have no idea that C-N-O-Y ever ran, presumably, uh, unless maybe it puts something in <laughs> to identify itself, but it makes no difference to them. And so it just sort of slips into the stage and kind of works like it's part of the original program. So how does it do this? Well, so it does depend a bit on some knowledge of the internals of how the C compiler is working. And um, these would probably would have been observable by someone, you know, clever and interested in learning things like, you know, how the compiler uses the assembly language. It also happens to be this particular trick there is documented that the C compiler uses Y-based indexing for uh, for uh, accessing data segment variables. Anyway, somebody with one way or another knowledgeable of how the compiler works could and obviously did figure this out. <laughs> the article, the original article that I found, uh, and maybe there was there may be something earlier in the. Uh, mailing list uh, archives, but I didn't dig too deeply for that. But the original article I found dates from December of 1994, but the, the article itself has a date that's in June or July. I don't know, it's, it's the middle of 1994. So, anyway, uh, program dates from, you know, roughly 25 or 26 years ago. Uh, in the article, Mike notes that he has uh, used this for, to successfully rebuild. Um, the entire Ultimuse 3 system, which is eight executables. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Uh, actually, two links. One is to, to Jeff Tunison's um, mailing list post, and then the, there's a link in there to this article from uh, the OS9 newsletter of December 94. So you can check it out for yourself. So, all right, well, that's a little bit of an introduction. Um, so what is CNOI? Not just where did it come from or why are we talking about it, but what is it? So basically the CNOI exploits some knowledge uh, of this idiosyncrasy of OS9 level 2 memory management, which might be specific for the COCO 3. I'm not sure. Uh, I know OS9, even OS9 level 2 existed on other systems, so I don't know if this idiosyncrasy is specific to the OS9 level, uh, the Cocoa 3 OS9 level 2 implementation or not. Um, but it might be. <laughs> but it also might not be because it's kind of somewhat, uh, well, I'd, I'd consider it somewhat of an obvious idea to do it this way as a kernel person uh, <laughs> uh, for a obviously different kernel. But so maybe, maybe not. We'll, basically, this, this filter takes the assembly language source generated by the compiler and that assembly source obviously has to work with how the system uh, allocates memory for programs and specifically how it allocates memory for the data segments of programs and so the assembly source is kind of aware of how that works. Of course that system was designed for OS 9 level 1 which is strictly limited to the original 64K physical address space of the, of the 6809. And so the program itself essentially has to be aware of how that data is allocated and work around it. And so what does CNOI do is it figures that it, it, there's an idiosyncrasy, I'm going to try to explain in a minute, uh, that um, with OS9 level 2 on the Cocoa 3, 
that CNOI essentially changes the program to be unaware of any efforts to separate the data segment of the programs for reinterest purposes. And so the program itself is a little bit dumber, and <laughs> um, which is kind of good actually because the little bit dumber program does a little bit less work and actually will perform a little bit better. Uh, so the, the CNOI simplifies the addressing of the data and it provides uh, an observable increase in performance. So, <laughs> moving down a level. Uh, so, uh, what is it about OS9 memory usage that we're kind of going in and exploiting? So, as most people who've d done any research or <laughs> are taking an interest at all in OS9 will know and be able to pair it or whatever is that programs written for OS9 have to be done so with the position independent code, right? Um, and that's a, a sort of was well, a technique of, of how the assembly language instructions are written, how they reference jumps and, and other changes of program flow. And that doesn't change here with CNOI at all. They are still position independent. But there's one more thing that usually gets left out. It's sort of related, but not necessarily the exact same thing. But the programs for OS9 are both position independent and reentrant. And so what does reentrant mean? Well, essentially it means if you, you can have two instances of the same program running the exact same section of, of, of instructions um, well, at the same time, but in fact they're not at the same time, but they're interleaved at the processor, and which the operating system takes care of with the scheduler. But so over some larger period of time, there'll be multiple copies of the program appearing to run, <laughs> or they, you know, they run within that block of time, even though they're not literally at the same time. Here, here's where it gets a little thick for people. <laughs> um, um, to start with multitasking, you're able to run more than one program. Two different programs both run at the same time. It's as long as they just don't access the same blocks of memory, and obviously not the same the same instructions, and also don't access the same storage. No conflict, no big deal. But if you take and, and try to run two copies of the same program, well, then by default, depending on how they're written, essentially those two programs will be trying to access the exact same block of memory. And so, in many cases, this might work if they're both accessing data memory that is just for, you know, storage, just reference or whatever, things like constants or, or such. That'll work fine. But if they're accessing and modifying the same block of memory, in general, that's a bad idea. Now, there's ways to program around that to use locking and that sort of thing to prevent them from stomping on each other, but it's an extra effort, and certainly not the kind of thing that an operating system just handles for you. <laughs> to the extent an operating system does just handle it for you is it makes it so that the two instances of the same program are not actually accessing the same block of memory. And so this term, like I said, is called re-entrancy, literally uh, you're able to re-enter the same program at the same time, you know, without exiting the first instance. And there are various techniques uh, for that, things like 
you know, allocating memory only on the stack with automatic variables and that sort of thing. At the operating system level, this goes a bit farther. So I mentioned the position independence. So in the code section, you have addresses that are PC relatives, PC being the program counter. So the register in the in the CPU that keeps track of where you're running in the program. At compile time, when you actually build the code for the program, you don't know what address is going to be in the PC because the, the operating system may load you anywhere in memory. But you can discover it at runtime. Uh, so obviously you can read the PC or there are other ways to, to figure out what the, the program counter is, um, particularly on different processors that are not as friendly to position-independent coding as a 6809. Um, so that's for position-independence. But for re-entrancy, uh, every new running instance of the program is allocated its own data section. So when you look at the header of an OS9 program, it'll say you have so much space that's code, that's you know program instructions, and so much space that's allocated for data. And then, it, so if you if you load two copies of that program at the same time, OS9 will allocate one chunk of space for the in the instructions. There'll be one section allocated, and both copies of the programs can run the same set of instructions because you're not supposed to change them. Part of the rules for coding but if you load two copies of the same program you'll still end up with two copies of the data section because when the programs run each one will want to be modifying its own data or potentially modifying its own data section when your program goes to access data just so data section addressing this is based on an index which points to the base of the data section and so at compile time, you know how far from the base of the data section the variable is that you want to access, but you don't know where the data section starts. And so you'll be able to figure that out when it runs based on you know, the startup protocol that OS9 implements, which basically means that it'll tell you with, by loading certain addresses into certain registers where your data section starts. So let's move on talking about OS9 level 2, particularly on the Cocoa 3. So, for OS9, well, let's take a step back. OS9 level 1 uh, will actually assign different physical addresses uh, for, the for the separate data sections in each instance. And so, you know, the data section for the first instance might load at 2000, uh, whereas you load the program, a second copy of the same program, the second copy's data section might be at 4000 literally different uh, CPU addresses, literally a different space in memory, but but uh, and not surprisingly different addresses because it is a different space in memory. The trick is when you move to OS9 level 2, there's a hardware usually called the MMU or memory management unit. You can take some issue with that in modern times because modern usage in MMU usually involves some memory protection or whatever that the COCO does not have. Anyway, we'll still call it MMU because that's the popular usage for calling the, the device on the um, COCO 3. It is like an MMU in certain ways, <laughs> even a modern one. So in OS9 Level 2, the MMU hardware is utilized and ends up constructing memory maps for new processes that look a whole lot like the old processes. 
The net effect is that the hardware is used such that uh, data sections are always loaded at address zero. So the base address for any indexing into the data section is always zero. And so whereas in our previous example on OS9 level one, program one would access data based at 2000 and program two, same program as instance two, would access data based at 4000. In this case, program one, instance one of the program would access data based at zero and instance two of the program would also access data based at zero. And it turns out this is apparently is always true uh, for level two OS9 on the Cocoa 3. So it's just kind of neat. <laughs> and so when you know that the index is always going to be zero, then any data access into the uh, any access into the data section that's indexed from zero, you can ch you could change the the program instruction to use um, direct or extended direct addressing or even immediate depending on the instruction and how you're doing it. And the point being is that these types of instructions generally are a little smaller and a little quicker to access uh, data than using an actual indexed instruction. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of neat. <laughs> so, so yeah, so basically, whereas your program, you know, like I said, OS9 Level 2 programs basically follow the same rules as OS9 Level 1 programs, or at least officially they do. But it, it, it looks like there's this thing you can rely on happening on OS9 Level 2 on the COCO 3 that allows you to write your programs differently and that's what CNOI is doing to the assembly sources generated by the compiler is so that the assembly programs are written so that rather than trying to cooperate with a, the addressing of, of data segments being different between uh, different instances of the same program, the assumption is that every instance of the same program now will use the same physical CPU addresses to access the data segments and therefore can use simpler instructions to do so. <laughs> Pretty neat. So, let's see, moving on. So, see no why operation. How does it work? Well, so, again, it's, it's in the filter chain. The assembly source, the compiler runs, generates assembly source. The assembly source would be passed to the assembler. Instead, it gets intercepted uh, and is passed to the see no why filter. The CNOI filter scans the source code generated by the compiler for certain patterns, specifically for Y-based indexed addressing, because, you know, again, it's documented and observable that the compiler uses the Y index for um, uh, accessing the data segments of the OS9 executable or associated with it. So the, the filter scans for certain patterns, Y-based indexed addressing in particular, uh, and the filter outputs code that's translated to be a suitable alternative based on the assumption that the uh, the base address of the data segment will be zero. So rather than being a Y-based index address, depending on the instruction, it swaps that out to being direct uh, addressed if it's a low value or, or uh, extended direct or depending on the instruction, it might even just load X or load a register with an actual value directly as an immediate. 
So, pretty cool. <laughs> How does this work? I mean, why is this okay? And so then, again, there's the assumption that the MMU will assure that each data section instance remains unique, uh, even though they're the same addresses. So, whereas, you know, on OS9 level 1, the program would go and access 2000-something um, for the data on one instance, and another instance would access it at 4000. In this case, both instances are going to go and access data at 0000, or, you know, an, an offset from there. And the operating system, when it loads up each instance or switches between instances, it will have set up the MMU so that accessing 0000 on the first instance will access one chunk of memory, and accessing 0000 on the second instance will access a different chunk of memory. So there's still two separate chunks of data memory, one per instance of the program. It's just they both have the same address when each instance is running. <laughs> um, so the code itself is using the same set of addresses. It doesn't have to change. So, confused? Uh, I can see where it might be confusing, but that's how it works. It's kind of cool. I think I've endorsed this idea. I think it's pretty cool. I think there's probably some warnings that need to be made. Um, some of them may be bigger deals uh, <laughs> um, to worry about than uh, or lesser deals now that we're so much farther down the road and the chances of OS 9 uh, making changes on the 6809 <laughs> are, on the one hand, they are slimmer, but on the other hand, there are people working on the Nitrous 9 kernel, which is the, the modern inheritor of the OS 9, and it's possible somebody could change something. And it may be a good idea, maybe a good reason to do so. So if you want to use a CNOI filter or the equivalent on when you're building code for OS 9 Level 2 or Nitrous 9 Level 2, there's at least a chance that something could change in the future that will make your program not run. I don't think this is very likely. I'm also not, I'm not working on the OS 9 or Nitrous 9 kernels much. If I, I never have and not really planning to, but maybe things could change in the future, but, uh, you know, not at this time. <laughs> but that's just it. I can't speak for it. I don't know if it'll change or not. So you'll have to weigh that risk for yourself. A warning or whatever is to do all OS 9 level 2 setups do the same thing regarding data segment. So, I mean, I think that's the biggest, the big definer of OS 9 level 2 is the use of a MNU. Uh, and again, it would definitely appeal to me if I was right, uh, implementing OS 9 Level 2 on a system with an MMU to always want to set up the data segments um, you know, the same and use the MMU to make sure that they point to different memory. And the question is, you know, if you do go and run on a, you know, a gimmicks uh, running OS 9 Level 2, does it do the same thing? I don't know. Do you need your program that's written for the Cocoa 3 to run on your gimmicks? Maybe, maybe not. If they're using graphics, it probably won't run anyway. But, I don't know. It's something to think about. So if that, if that need applies to you, then you really should consider that. One thing that occurs to me, from what I remember of the OS 9 uh, executable headers is I don't remember there being a marker to say that this OS 9 level 2 versus OS 9 level 1. So if there's a chance that your OS 9 level 2 program could run on an OS 9 level 1 system, 
you know, if you if you build it with a C no Y, it's not going to work. I know it's not in level one. Or if it does, it'll be the, a beyond a miracle <laughs> at one time, you know. But so, again, is this a big deal? Probably not, but something to think about. The final warning I really have here is there are different conventions for different systems. For example, if somebody built a different compiler for OS 9 Level 2, a different runtime system for it, whatever, they might try to, they might set it up so that the U register is used as the base for the data segments for all the compiled code rather than the Y. And that's perfectly fine. If they implement this kind of test, then they'll have to do their own C no U version of it. <laughs> um, but if you're somehow working as a third-party developer on the other compiler or using the other compiler, and then you suddenly throw in a C no Y style of build, and then your program crashes or doesn't work, that could be why. Now, again, this is something that would have probably been a bigger warning certainly 25 years ago when this first became in use or 30 years ago or whatever. It's something to think about. It's not in a hugely in the realm of possibility, but it could be there. So, um, as they say, your mileage may vary. <clears throat> okay, so well, that gets us through to uh, some conclusions. If I haven't expressed myself clearly enough, I think this is an ingenious hack. Really cool. You preserve the integrity of the system meaning that you still have two different data segments even though you ch you've simplified the code it's really cool makes the code run faster takes advantage of something the operating system is doing on os9 level 2 lets you perform a little better i think it's a really cool idea while using c no y in the way it's implemented or whatever certainly is kind of tied to the c compiler if you've written significant amounts of assembly code, or if you're writing a significantly sized assembly pro program for OS 9 Level 2, if you're making a lot of accesses into the data segment, and you're having to do so by setting up your own index register to point to the base of the data segment, and then indexing off of it, then you could do your own version of this the same idea, the see no why. Uh, just in your assembler source, you could just switch away from using the indexed assembly instructions and, and you know assume that the index was going to be zero anyway and use the direct or, or um, uh, extended direct uh, or other instructions it should work if it works for the compiler it ought to work for the assembler if you do that I'd love to hear about it I'd love to hear what level of performance you improvements you see from it and of course if there's something I'm missing if I'm just really not seeing something <laughs> then please let me know what did I miss, what caveat, what warning did, do you need to make this work, what huge disaster occurred from people using CNOY as provided by Mike Knudsen. I would definitely love to hear any of that. But like I said, it makes sense to me. It's really clever. I wish, um, I think I was reading the list when this stuff kind of came about, but at that point, while I was uh, a computer engineering uh, major in college, I did not know enough about the 6809 and the Cocoa 3, whatever, that I didn't really grasp this. I just thought, well, that sounds cool, but whatever. <laughs> Back, you know, when Mike was writing this stuff and, and posting about it. So I think it's kind of cool. 
I hope you enjoyed hearing about this or talking a little bit about OS 9 and how it's handling your memory stuff or whatever. There's a lot of kind of in-depth, nitty-gritty stuff to talk about with how the program's set up, how they get initiated and, and started by the operating system and how they find their resources, where, where their data sections are and all that sort of stuff. If you have specific questions, feel free to pass them on. Maybe it'll inspire your own tech segment in the future. Or if you want to do your own tech segment, well, I'll be happy to hear and discuss about that with you as well. All right. Well, I think that's probably enough. Looking forward to a Tandy Assembly. Seeing a few more faces live. Um, this uh, separation has gone on too long. Let's all get us back together. All right. Okay. We'll be good. Coco forever. And uh, ta-ta for now. Thanks. All you've wanted in a computer and more. The TDP System 100, a complete system ready to plug into your color TV set. It features 16K of memory, expandable to 32K at any TDP service center nationwide. And expand from 32 to 64K through Southco, the Georgia distributor. Raised keyboard with gold contacts. Standard basic built-in from Microsoft. RS-232 interface device built right in. RF interface for direct hookup to any TV built in. Programming manuals included at no charge. Bust-out game pack included at no charge. Joysticks included at no charge. The suggested retail price is only $379. From Southco Sales Corporation. Mr. Turtle, how many megabytes does it take to get a good deal on a Cocoa hard drive? I have no idea. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl? How many megabytes does it take to get a good deal on a Cocoa hard drive? Oh, let's find out. 10, 15, 20. Oh, it's 20. Looking for a hard drive for your color computer? Ask the owl. <laughs> Owlware is the leading provider of hard drive systems for color computers, offering 20, 40, and 80 megabyte hard drive systems. Our complete hard drive packages include the hard drive, case with fan, SCSI controller, LR Owl interface, and software. Fully assembled and tested. 20 megabytes, just $495. 40 megabytes, just $609. And an amazing 80 megabytes for just $875. All our drives come with a one year limited warranty and parts and labor are covered for 90 days. We've earned our place in the market by providing products you can be proud of. Customer service, quality products, and sound design. For all of your hard and floppy drive needs, remember to ask the owl. <laughs> Owlware, located in Mertztown, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on the Coco Crew Podcast for episode 60. This month, I'm going to review a game called Rampage. This is an official arcade license from Activision. It was coded in 1989 by Steve Bjork and published by Tandy. Rampage was sold in Radio Shack stores across the nation, and it came on a cartridge ROM pack. It requires a Tandy Color Computer 3 with a whopping 128K of stock memory. Supports composite or RGB display. The object of the game is quite simple. Your mission is to climb buildings and destroy them until they collapse to the ground. When the game starts out, you have a choice to pick one out of three characters. You can be George, Lizzie, or Ralph. After selecting a character, you start out on the street and have to quickly choose a building to climb 
as there are cars trying to smash into you. You also have to try to dodge people throwing grenades out the building windows at you. When you climb a building and start attacking it, you will see it losing structure and eventually it will collapse. You must jump off it before it collapses otherwise you will lose some of your life. To gain life on your meter, you can eat the humans in the building windows as you are climbing and attacking the buildings. However, you must be careful because sometimes even the humans will have weapons to throw at you. After you have attacked all the buildings and made them collapse, you will move on to a next city. Each city gets harder as the game progresses. This game really lives to its name, as it's a total rampage. I have played the original arcade version to compare, and I must say Steve Bjork did a fantastic job at recreating Rampage for the Coco 3. The graphics and large sprites look incredible. The game speed is also very nice. Steve also added the unique feature found present in the arcade version where you can attack other players if you are playing multiplayer. Not many of the home versions of Rampage supported this feature. Speaking of multiplayer, what makes this Coco 3 game extra special is that it supports three players at once. Two people can use the joysticks and one person could use the keyboard. I've spent many hours back in the day playing it with my friend and sister. We would all crowd around the Coco 3. Well, there you have it, another game for you to try on your Color Computer 3. If you haven't already played it, or if it's been a while, you can give it another play. You can find this game on the Coco Archives website, however I highly recommend tracking down the original authentic cartridge for your collection. Until next month, happy Coco Gaming. Well, we have reached the end of episode 60. As usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring all those news articles each month and continuing to provide us wonderful tech segments. Big thanks to Mike Rowan for editing the podcast and continuing to entertain us with those awesome commercials he creates. Thanks to Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. Last but not least, a huge thanks to all of you who listen and support us each month. We appreciate your feedback, no matter negative or positive. Until next month, happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance. Dance, dance, dance.
Welcome.